Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, we will be speaking with SCCM President Todd Dorman, MD, FCCM. Dr. Dorman is Senior Associate Dean for Education Coordination, Associate Dean of Continuing Medical Education, and Professor and Vice Chair for Critical Care. He holds joint appointments in medicine, surgery, and the School of Nursing at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. Welcome, Dr. Dorman. Welcome. Thank you for having me today. So, Todd, as incoming president, you have been involved in the SCCM for many years. Mm -hmm. Can you give us some background on how you first became involved with the society and how your career has evolved to lead you to this point? So I'm going to, if you don't mind, start maybe a half step before that and sort of how did I get interested in critical care? Perfect. I was doing internal medicine and wasn't really sure what field I wanted to do in healthcare. Um, and along my internal medicine, fell in love with nephrology, fell in love with nutrition, was already pretty good, cardiology and pulmonary stuff, had been a, a TA in physiology and undergraduate, and then met two people, a lady, Yvonne Shellhorse, who was doing a critical care at where I was doing my medicine residency in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, and a gentleman, Mike Gillette, who was an anesthesiologist that had been at Harvard and had uh, written and edited a couple of books on adult critical care and started my ICU rotation and fell in love. Fell in love with ICU and fell in love with the two of them <laughs> as well as mentors. And so uh, by the time I was finishing my medicine residency, I had decided that I wanted to go back and do anesthesia and do a second residency and combine that to do critical care. And because they were both involved in the Society of Critical Care Medicine, I joined in 1988, just before I started my anesthesia residency. And I guess I've always been sort of a, if you're going to do something, do something <laughs> sort of person. And so I started, uh, as I best recall, we might have to get the archives out and dig, <laughs> but as I best recall, I started on the membership committee and started uh, learning about how to get members to join a society and you know, I could do some simple things. I could call people. I could, there wasn't email then. <laughs> um, I could call people and say, do you want to be a member, et cetera. And that love then led me into the next committee. And the, I think the third one I was on was then the MKKSAP for the exam. And obviously then that got me more involved in the sort of the section work and just grew up the society um, over time. And it's been a wonderful experience, unbelievably um, honored and humbled to be in the position I am today. But it's been just absolutely wonderful. I have found the community that the society offers to be a great support. I have found the people uh, individually, uh, you included, to be absolutely wonderful in supporting and mentoring um, and helping me continue to grow. And I think the mission really you know, we're a membership society, uh, so we need to pay attention to the members as the primary stakeholders, you would think. But I think most people may not know that the mission statement of the society doesn't mention the members. The mission statement is about providing the highest quality care to the patient, and that really is our North Star. And I think that's a very interesting uh, place we find ourselves where we always have to ask what's best for the patient and then the secondary question really is what's best for our members. And that's very unusual in professional societies. 
So I think if you tie that unique circumstance to the fact that we're a multidisciplinary interprofessional society, we really stand out as being very different. I think you might remember a number of years ago when we used to do things like legislative walks on the Hill, um, (laughs) going into offices in D.C. and having them be shocked that there was such a professional society in medicine um, that balanced and created an equal opportunity. Uh, You know, buzzwords today are diversity. The SCCM has been there for 45 years now. (laughs) They didn't know what critical care was in those days. And that is correct. You have seen, obviously, a lot of changes in critical care over the years that you've been in, in the field. What do you think are some of the big challenges that face our field and the critical care community going forward? So I think that one, I think there's two or three that probably stand out to me. The end of life issue, I think both in this country and as an international topic with all of the different cultural and religious perspectives that come to play in that topic are really critical for us to figure out. You know, we have to balance respect for the patient. We don't have highly accurate information in our ability to predict complete outcomes in many circumstances. And so we're, we're in an interesting position where we are at risk of underdoing and at risk of overdoing. And both are not really tolerable. Um, underdoing is against our principle for the patient as the highest quality care. And overdoing is against our principle yeah. admission yeah. Um, and is very costly. So I, I think this is going to be a challenge. Um, an interesting thing is that we have begun just recently a project with the uh, American Bar Association to begin looking at some of the policies around end of life. And we're very preliminary, just a month or two into discussions with them and beginning a potential relationship that maybe will help at least in this country as a starting point. But this is an international um, mm-hmm. concern. Um, I think there is still a concern about when patients are critically ill, do they have a dedicated team that is capable and present um, is still a barrier. Now, again, in the United States, back about 15 years ago, the estimates were when adults were critically ill, that that number was probably in the 10% range. Mm -hmm. I think by best estimates, it's probably 60%. So... Are we been successful because we have a fivefold increase, or are we failing because 40% approximately still don't have access to this issue? So I think it's been an ongoing challenge, and I think it will continue to be a challenge, partly because of its connection to the politics of healthcare. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, with some aspects of what I think the future of healthcare being longitudinal care. Um, and a more complete model of sort of ownership of trying to help the patient not only when they're in front of us, but even after that point in time, that there'll be a greater attention to the fact that what happens in the ICU and the need for a captain of that ship. As as a, a friend says, you know, in industry, if you knew that 40% of your cost drivers were in a particular part of your industry, you would never allow your business not to directly manage them mm-hmm. um, in a way that would be different than the rest of the system. And we need to really take that to heart and think about how to fix that. All good thoughts. <laughs> and Thank you. 
enormous challenges. You're absolutely right. And and talking about the the access to quality critical care issue um, relates to the the manpower and the burnout issues and the mm-hmm. you know where are we going to get all the staff to take care of all of these people? I think that's an continuing challenge too. Yeah, and the burnout issue, you know, is very interesting and and its connection to staffing because I do think this is an area we have a chance to maybe get an earlier win if we all stay um, focused at this topic and concentrated on it. I say that because I think that the economic case is simple for hospitals to understand. Mm -hmm. And the cost of replacing staff so far exceeds their routine salary that it's throwing money away to have to keep chasing the next employees. So to not step up and do things for our present team and support them in a way that keeps them in the fold and allows them to become more experienced and more expert in what they do, um, no matter who they are as part of the healthcare team, so that they truly can practice at the top end of their scope of practice is just silly for healthcare systems. This is a no-brainer fiscally. It's a no-brainer from a humanism standpoint. I think we also, tied to that, though, are going to have to figure out how to deal with another problem in the ICU, which is adding to this problem, which is that many ICUs in the country have patients who are not critically ill in them. Yes. And so this is going to be right-sizing ICUs and really getting into admission and discharge criteria. Um, But beyond that, as I think Derek Angus this morning did a good job of pointing out on the research side, but on the clinical side, it's hard to make very defined rules about who you will admit or discharge because it doesn't take into account all the nuances of that patient. But we are going to have to do better. And I know at our own institution, there are some days we have three, four patients in every ICU that's capable of leaving and no floor beds for them to be able to go to. And that's not a good use of the expensive ICU resources or the dedicated ICU nurses and respiratory therapists and pharmacists that have done so much extra training and may have additional salary benefits associated with it to then be providing care the patients that are really best managed elsewhere, plus keeping them in a relatively high risk from an infection control mm-hmm. standpoint environment is not very fair. Yeah, absolutely true. And that occurs in every hospital. I mean, this country, we have very different criteria, if you will, for ICU admission than many other countries because we have relatively many more ICU beds than a lot of uh, other countries. But that on the one hand, opens up access to the patients, but on the other hand, sets us up for, just as you say, having a large number of, potentially a large number of patients in the ICU who don't really need critical care. You know, the interesting thing is that it's a backhanded compliment at times. <laughs> the, the real issue for many of these patients is that there's a fear by some of the general physicians that the wards are inadequate. Yes. So the ICU is seen as a high-quality, safe place to put patients they're just uncertain about. Yes. Um, And we need to tackle not only fixing the problem on the ICU side, but advancing the capability in those other environments so that the patients are well cared for and the physicians are comfortable with that. Yeah. It's it's a very complex. It's a complex issue. issue. <laughs> but that's what we do. We do complex care. <laughs> 
from the perspective of president of this organization, mm-hmm. um, there are broad goals that society has been working on and developing through their strategic plan that go over many years. What about you? Do you have personal goals for what you want to accomplish as president? Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, I do, but I guess, you know, we've tried over the last 10, 15 years to move from moving at the whim of the president (laughs) to making sure the president is picking items that are within the strategic plan. Mm -hmm. This morning in my opening address, I spoke broadly about people, patient-oriented issues, but the burnout PTSD thing, I think, Mm -hmm. is something we have to address very quickly. I think PICS, the post-intensive care syndrome, and our project Thrive, is another piece that we need to do. Uh, We don't understand what happens to our survivors. We don't know the quality of that survivor state well enough. And because we don't, we haven't learned how to do more things in the ICU that mitigate some of the problems that happen downstream. And I'm sure there will be profound innovations. It, Mm -hmm. It wouldn't surprise me if an early one isn't more use of ultrasound and twitch technology to look at diaphragm atrophy, and then exercises that are not, we're exercising them on the vent, meaning something vague, but something we're doing to manage load to the diaphragm so that the diaphragm is more prepared to help with inspiration post, <laughs> post-critical illness. So I think that those are probably the big things in terms of the patient side of this and our staff side of this. And I think if we can balance those issues of better understanding our patients and dedicating a little more effort to our staff and our teams, uh, then we'll be in a much better place. So those are probably my personal goals related to the president role. My personal role, my personal personal goals um, are to survive, maybe to, to to have fun and to be seen as a good representative of what I think, as I said early on, is just such an important and valuable professional society. Mm-hmm. And I I hope people at the end say, you know, boy, that was a good year. Yeah. Well, I am. I have no doubt that it will be. I think the society is in good hands, and I congratulate you. And once again, thank you for coming to talk with us. Oh well, thank you for taking some time and having me today. It's been been very exciting. You you may not know that February started with a week in India, at the Indian meeting, and then from there flew to Japan for a week in Japan, back to Baltimore for about two and a half days, and then here to Orlando. So it's already been a whirlwind tour of critical care medicine and exciting to go to ICUs in each of these countries and see um, what they're actually doing, accomplishing, and innovating on the ground has been already a blessing. Yeah, I I think being president of this society, that kind of travel and exposure presents a tremendous learning opportunity for you personally, but also for the society is, you know, I had a similar experience when I was president, traveling and seeing what else is going on in the world brings great opportunities to improve what we do here in the United States. Um, Yeah, I completely agree. And and I think, as you know, we also have under the sepsis uh, brand and the SSC in partnership with ESICM, a focus at sepsis in underdeveloped, under-resourced countries. And, you know, that's a very fascinating issue because the paradigm of care may need to be very different. Absolutely. But imagine we may be shocked that a much more scaled down 
and I don't mean this in any derogatory way, simplistic approach may actually turn out to be more efficacious. And so may, where some people think it's going to inform those environments, it's intriguing to see what it does to inform our environment (laughs) about what we do. Absolutely. It's um, it's tremendous opportunity and potential. And as you said, there's so much more to learn. It's like the more we know, the more we know we need to know with the post-intensive care as as a huge area of attention now. We never mm. even thought about that, uh, perhaps even 10 years ago. Correct. So, I mean, I think there were and are a couple of centers that uh, more down the pulmonary critical care side that established post-hospitalization clinics. And there was a little more continuity because of the pulmonary component, I, I think. I'm, I'm postulating that as, a, as an answer. But I think there is an opportunity for us to really expand that and, and really start to understand. And it'll be interesting whether that has a feedback loop into burnout and PTSD. Will we be better off seeing how well some patients actually do and contribute instead of only possibly feeling like the good ones leave and the bad ones we see pass away, meaning the bad experiences, right, right. and we don't really get to see the really good ones right. way downstream. And so it'll be interesting. Not only would it be valuable for our patient care, but it may turn out to be valuable for our psyche. That's absolutely <laughs> true. Very often we have patients leave the unit and sometimes leave the hospital in certainly not their previous state of health. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have a mechanism for following them up, so we didn't realize that down the road some of them do extraordinarily well. And as we study the post-intensive care syndrome, maybe we'll be able to increase that number. That would be spectacular. I I think that's also connected, right, to thrive. And as I I said this morning, we want our patients to not only survive, but to thrive. thrive. And now we're paying attention to it. So So thank you very much for today. Well, thank you, and good luck this year. Oh, thank you, Margaret. We have been talking today with Dr. Todd Dorman, Society of Critical Care Medicine president. He is currently at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, and we look forward to his presidential year with the society. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is Professor of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the Director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former President of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare 
at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.